Let me invite you to open your Bibles this evening to the prophecy of Zechariah and to the ninth chapter. Zechariah is the next to last book in the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew, you can turn backwards a couple of books and you'll find Zechariah. So Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah, where we read this grand prophecy in chapter 9 and in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Father, Help us now as we open your word and think about your son. Give us clarity of mind and desire of heart to know him, to follow him, to love him, to trust him. We pray in his name. Amen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here is one of those great Old Testament passages which prophesies so powerfully, so majestically, the coming of God's anointed one, the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, the coming of our Lord Jesus. And what does it say about him? Well, we're told memorably here that the Messiah will come on a donkey, and we find that Christ did on the Sunday before his crucifixion. And we're told that the Messiah will be humble, humble and mounted on a donkey. And surely Jesus was and is that. And verse 9 also says that the Messiah will come as Savior, endowed with salvation. And aren't we glad he came like that, that he came to die for our sins and to be our Savior. And notice also tonight that Zechariah announces that this humble Savior riding on a donkey will be a king, king over God's people. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. The Messiah was coming as a prophet, Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like Moses, and Messiah was also coming as a priest, Psalm 110, according to the order of Melchizedek. And here in Zechariah 9, we are told that this Messiah was coming to as a king, as king over God's People, behold, your king is coming to you. And so, when the Magi arrived from the east, following yonder star, as John H. Hopkins Jr. put it, when the Magi arrived from the east, following yonder star, their question was, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And it was appropriate that they should find this king in Bethlehem, the city of David, in the hometown of King David, in other words, because David was the fountainhead of Israel's royal dynasty. 
And because this baby, born king of the Jews, was born into that dynasty, into that royal line, into the house and family of David. He was born to be king of the Jews. And that title, King of the Jews, is to be understood, of course, in light of Galatians 3.7, which tells us that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. It is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham, which means that if you are trusting Christ tonight, if you are a believer in Christ tonight, then you spiritually are a Jew. Grafted into God's olive tree. You, if you're trusting in Christ tonight, are among the true Israel, the Israel of God. And if you are, well then, Jesus coming as king of the Jews means that he's come to be your king. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ tonight, then you are among the daughter of Zion, Zechariah 9, to whom the humble Savior King has come. The rejoicing in verse 9 is for you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, and your king has come to you, New Testament believers. Your king, Zechariah calls him. So Christ is our prophet, Christ is our priest, and Christ is our king. And what does it mean that Jesus is our king? Well, tonight let's allow those two great catechisms, the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism, to give us the answers to that question. What does it mean that Jesus is our king? Well, consider what the catechisms say, how they summarize this for us, and then we'll go through the scriptures to demonstrate that their answers are so and then to flesh those answers out even further than can be done in a brief catechetical format. So, what does it mean that Jesus is our king? What kinds of things does Christ do as our king? What kinds of things do kings do? And how does Christ do them for us? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it like this. Christ executeth the office of a king... In subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And then the Heidelberg Catechism puts it as follows. Christ is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us. He is our King in that he governs us by his word and spirit and defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation which he has purchased for us. Now, what I want to do tonight is is give you four aspects of Christ's kingship from those two definitions. All four of them are mentioned in the Westminster, and two of them are mentioned in the Heidelberg. So, four things tonight. Number one, Christ is our king in that he subdues us to himself as Westminster puts it. He subdues us to himself. He is our king, in other words, in that 
If we are indeed his subjects, it is because he himself has brought us under his reign. He himself has subdued our rebel hearts and made us his willing subjects. We were not born into his kingdom by a natural birth, but rather we were brought into it by the subduing power of a spiritual birth. We are like subjects of one kingdom who are brought by the action of some earthly king, and in this case it would be a benevolent king. We are brought by some king to be subjects of a different kingdom. And that's how it is for us in the spiritual realm. Like an earthly king might do, Christ has conquered us for himself benevolently in this case and made us now the subjects of his kingdom. Think of the citizens of what became West Germany back at the end of World War II. They were conquered. They were subdued. They were brought under a new regime. And it was good. It was a good thing. And that's how Christ subdues his subjects to himself. He has brought us into his kingdom. He has subdued our rebel hearts and made us his subjects. And I invite you to turn now and just observe this subduing with me in Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Now, it's in Psalm 110, as we heard last week. It's in this psalm that the Messiah is called a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. You can see that in verse 4. But the Messiah is also hailed in this psalm as king, as well, as the one who wields the scepter, verse 2. So the Messiah in Psalm 110 is not only a priest, but he's also a king. And indeed, he is a king in this psalm who subdues rebel hearts and makes them into his own willing subjects. Listen to David quoting the Lord and describing this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Now this is a messianic psalm. We learn that in Acts chapter 2, that the Lord is talking about Christ here. And what is he saying about Christ here in verses 1 through 3? Well, he begins... The Father begins here with a call to the resurrected Christ in verse 1 to take his rightful seat at the Father's right hand. Read Peter's sermon at Pentecost where he quotes verse 1 here and you will see that that is what verse 1 refers to. Christ's ascension into heaven. The Father's call to the resurrected Christ to ascend to his right hand. And in verse 1 he is told to remain there until the Father should make a footstool of his enemies, which he will do, verse 2, by extending Christ's scepter so that Christ will rule in the midst of his enemies. And what exactly is meant by Christ ruling in the midst of his enemies? How is Christ's scepter stretched forth, verse 2, so that he rules in the midst of his enemies? 
Well, we might think that this is a reference to Christ's second coming and to the destruction of his enemies. And the psalm does come to that in verses 5 and 6. But I don't think that's what's actually in view in verses 1 through 3. In these verses, I think the Father is describing to Christ what is his present ruling, what we would say he is doing now, extending his rule now in the midst of his enemies. Because notice that this ruling of Christ in the midst of his enemies takes place not when Christ leaves his throne to return to earth, but it takes place, verse 1, while Christ is still seated on his throne, which is now. So I don't think verses 1 through 3 describe the ruling of Christ in the midst of his enemies when he comes again, but rather they describe the extension of his scepter, the extension of his rule, his coming more and more to rule in the midst of his enemies even now while he's still seated on his heavenly throne, verse 1. But how is that happening? How is Christ ruling in the midst of his enemies today? How is the Father stretching forth his scepter today? Well, the answer comes in verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Now, what is that verse describing? Well, it's describing men and women, boys and girls, in the day of Christ's power, freely volunteering themselves to Christ the King. It's describing the power of Jesus coming upon people so that they voluntarily bow the knee and acquiesce to his reign as king, and such that they begin living for him in holy array. Verse 3 describes a day of Christ's power in which his people freely volunteer themselves to him and begin to serve him with holy lives. But from where does Christ gain such a following? Whence come these people who come under the power of Christ and voluntarily begin to follow him and to walk in holiness? Well, the New Testament says in Romans 5 that the people whom God gives to Christ in this way are those who were once his enemies. And that fits hand in glove with what we read in verse 2, doesn't it? Christ ruling in the midst of his enemies. Christ or the Father extends Christ's scepter, verse 2, and Christ powerfully draws volunteers to himself, verse 3, out from the midst of his enemies, from the midst of sinners, from among the people who walk in darkness. Christ doesn't draw his volunteers from among those who were already his friends, from among those who were predisposed to volunteer on his side as if there were anyone like that. No, he draws his volunteers rather from among his enemies, verse 2, which is why they must be, as the shorter catechism puts it, subdued to him. They volunteer freely, yes. They give themselves to the king because they want to, but they want to not because of something in their nature, but because of something that happens to them, verse 3, by the power of Christ. Their hearts are changed. Their hearts are subdued. Their hearts are turned to Christ in the day of his power. And how does this happen? How does Christ come to rule in the midst of his enemies? How are his enemies subdued, changed, turned, so that they freely sign on with him? By the power of the gospel, right? By the power of the gospel, Christ 
brings his enemies, God in Christ brings his enemies to voluntarily submit themselves to the rule of Christ as king, to voluntarily entrust themselves to Christ and to begin walking in the holiness that befits his reign. By the power of the gospel, God in Christ gives men new hearts and subdues them to himself. And so even while Christ remains in heaven, verse 1, seated at the Father's right hand, by the preaching of the gospel, the Father is gradually stretching forth his Son's scepter, verse 2, beginning in Zion, in Jerusalem, and extending through Judea and Samaria, and today even to the remotest part of the earth. Wherever the gospel goes out and people submit themselves to Christ the King, verse 3, well, then the kingdom of Christ has been extended. His, accept, his scepter has lengthened out just a little bit more to subdue his chosen people to himself. I believe that's what verses 1 through 3 are describing. The expansion of Messiah's kingdom as the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth, and thus as those who were once Christ's enemies are reconciled to him through the blood of his cross and become his willing, holy subjects. Christ executes the office of a king, the Shorter Catechism says, in subduing us to himself. And he does that in the gospel. And if you are a Christian tonight, if you belong to Christ tonight, if you have volunteered freely to follow him, if you are one of his subjects, it is because Christ came by the power of his word in the gospel and by the Father's gentle extension of Christ's scepter in the gospel, and he subdued your rebel heart. If you are in Christ tonight, it is because Christ came to you in the power and loveliness of his good news and won your heart to himself. Do you remember when he came to you in the gospel? When he subdued you to himself? When he wooed you into his kingdom? Do you remember the way his scepter stretched out over you like a shepherd's staff and drew you into his fold? In doing so, he was exercising his office as king. He was bringing you, his enemy, to become his willing, loyal, holy subject. So that's the first thing to say about Christ's kingship tonight. Christ is our king, as the Shorter Catechism puts it, in that he subdues us to himself. And then secondly, Christ is our king in that he governs us by his word and spirit, says the Heidelberg Catechism. He governs us by his word and spirit. This is what kings do as well, right? They subdue people to themselves and they govern their people. They rule them, as the Shorter Catechism says. They issue laws and expect the people to obey those laws. And so it is with Christ. He governs his people too, as king. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism simply uses the word rules. Christ executed the office of a king in ruling us. But Heidelberg points out the means by which Christ rules us, namely by his word and spirit. And Heidelberg uses a word for Christ's rule, the word governs, that I think better befits the benevolent manner in which Christ rules us. So we'll go with Heidelberg for the wording of this second point. Christ governs us by his word and spirit. 
This is one aspect of his ministry to us as king. He governs us. He exercises his benevolent rule over us. He gives us the laws of his kingdom and calls us to obey. And one way he does so, says the catechism, is by his word. Christ governs us by his word. So, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, we read in chapter 4 that Christ was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He was inviting people by repenting of their sins and entrusting themselves to him as king. He was inviting people into his kingdom. Inviting them to be citizens of a whole new realm. Citizens of his domain, his kingdom. So he invites people into his kingdom, chapter 4. And then, beginning in the very next chapter, Jesus gives this famous Sermon on the Mount, which is a manifesto of how people are to live as citizens of that kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount, in other words, is the oration of the king explaining to his subjects, to those whom he has subdued to himself, how they are to live as members of his kingdom. That's what kings do. They give laws. They explain to their people what is expected of them. And that's what Jesus does. And of course, he doesn't just govern us by the Sermon on the Mount, but by every portion of his word. Christ speaks, and the word of God speaks to rule over us. So this is one way Christ, our king, governs us, says the Heidelberg Catechism, by his word. Are you listening? Are you submitting to your king in his word? Christ's words are not just suggestions. The word of God, whether in red ink or black, this is not just a list of suggestions. They are law. And indeed, these are the laws of the king for how we are to live as his subjects. Christ doesn't just make suggestions to us by his word. He governs us by his word. And also, says the catechism, he governs us by his spirit. By his Spirit, a Holy Spirit who moved the men, 2 Peter 1, who wrote God's words down. He governs us by the Holy Spirit who grants unction in the preaching of those words, 1 Thessalonians 1. He governs us by the Holy Spirit who has given us new life and who dwells within us if we belong to Christ and by whom we may walk. Galatians 5, so as not to carry out the desire of the flesh, but rather to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Christ governs us by his word, and he governs us by his spirit, and we can be sure that the two never contradict, but always work in unison and in concert together. So Christ is our king in that he subdues us to himself. Westminster Shorter Catechism, in that he governs us by his word and spirit, Heidelberg Catechism. And then a third point, namely that Christ is our king in that he defends and preserves us. He defends and preserves us. Westminster mentions Christ's defense of us, and Heidelberg speaks also of his preservation as well. And then Heidelberg adds this beautiful further explanation. Christ defends and preserves us, says the Heidelberg Catechism, in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us. Christ defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us. 
which reminds us that the most important way Christ defends and preserves us is in terms of our souls, in terms of our salvation for which he has spilled his blood. And that explanation from Heidelberg also reminds us that this salvation is meant to be enjoyed. In the enjoyment of that salvation. So just store that away tonight. We won't dwell on it, but just store away the thought that salvation is meant to be enjoyed. Just as a little extra drop of honey from Heidelberg's comb. But the main thing here is Christ's defense and preservation of his people. Westminster speaks of his defense of us just generally, just he defends us, from which we can be reminded that it's Christ who's defending us even when we're experiencing some physical protection. But perhaps Westminster also has primarily in mind what Heidelberg says explicitly, namely that Christ defends and preserves us, especially in the matter of our salvation. And again, this is what kings do, right? Kings defend their people. And this king, who is king over our souls, who is king of our salvation, will surely defend and preserve us in this particular way. This is the will of him who sent me, Jesus said in John 6, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus, in other words, has a commission to preserve his people, to defend his people, not to lose even one of his people. Of all that he has given me, I am to lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And he won't lose even a single one, will he? John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. As it is true of the stars of heaven, so it will be said in the last day of those whom the Father has given to his Son to defend and preserve because of the greatness of his might. And the strength of his power, not one of them, is missing. And so, in the words of James Black, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And so will you, if you belong to Christ. Why? Not because you are so strong, so as not to fall, but because you have a mighty king who loves his people and who infallibly defends and preserves them. And thus, as Keith Getty and Stuart Townend have taught us to sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. So then, Christ is our king in that he subdues us to himself in that he governs us by his word and spirit, in that he defends and preserves us. And then finally, Christ is our king in that he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. And that is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism this time. He restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. 
And again, this is what kings seek to do, is it not? Kings seek to restrain and to conquer those who oppose either themselves or their people. And so it is with Christ. He restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. The devil is on God's leash, we learn in the book of Job. He can only go as far as the Lord allows him. And the lions in Bunyan's allegory, which according to Derek Thomas probably represent the government and the Anglican church, both of which were persecutors in Bunyan's day, but both of those lions in Bunyan's story are chained. Why? Because Christ is king. And because as king, he restrains his enemies. He restrains those who oppose his cause. He restrains those who oppose his people. They can only go so far as the number of links that Christ allows in the chain. Satan, the greatest enemy of all, you may remember, demanded permission to sift Simon Peter like wheat. And what did Christ say to him there in Luke 22? Simon What did Christ say to Peter, that is? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Did you hear it? Jesus doesn't say to Peter, if you turn again, strengthen your brothers. He says to him, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Christ knows that Peter is going to turn again. Christ knows that Peter is going to survive Satan's attack. He knows that Peter's faith is not going to fail. He knows Peter is going to make it. But why? Why is Peter going to make it? It's not because Peter is so strong, is it? And it's certainly not because Christ expects the devil to go easy on him. Rather, I think the fact that Jesus knows that Peter is going to turn again. The fact that he knows Peter is going to make it must surely be related to the fact that he himself has prayed for Peter. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Surely that is why Peter turned again. Surely that is why his faith, though it wobbled, did not topple to the ground. Because Jesus prayed for him because Jesus was protecting him. Jesus was, as in our last heading, defending and preserving him. Jesus, under this heading, by his prayers, was restraining his and Peter's adversary, the devil. And not only does Christ restrain his and our enemies, but as the catechism teaches, he conquers them as well. He conquers his enemies, as we saw earlier, through the advance of the gospel. Christ conquers many of his enemies, in other words, by making them his subjects and his friends. Praise God. But there is coming a day, spoken of later in Psalm 110, in which, quote, he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will scatter the chief men over a broad country. Christ conquers his enemies. Revelation 19 puts it like this. 
in verses 11 through 21. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. The king is coming to make war and to conquer his enemies. And notice this as well. It's not just that Christ will avenge himself on his enemies for their affronts against himself, but also that when those enemies have harmed his people, when they have set themselves up as our enemies, Christ will avenge that too. In Revelation 6, the martyrs cry out to God, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And by the time world history reaches Revelation 19, verse 2, God will have done so. He will have avenged their blood. He has judged the great harlot, Revelation 19, 2, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants, on her. So like kings do, Christ both restrains and conquers his enemies and ours. What a good king. One who graciously subdues his people to himself by the power of the gospel so that they willingly, happily, come under his kind and benevolent rule, and who laid down his own life, who spilled his own blood so that they might have a gospel by which to be subdued. A king who, having benevolently subdued his people, also governs them, not leaving them to their own devices, but marking out the path on which his subjects should walk. And it's a good path. His commandments are not burdensome. A king who defends and preserves his countrymen and who loses not one of them and who will allow no one to snatch them from his hand so that every last one of his sheep will make it at the last to the green pastures of the heavenly kingdom. And a king who restrains and conquers both his enemies and ours 
So that on that last day, not only will every sheep, every last one of his sheep, be gathered into his fold, but also every drop of their blood will be avenged. And the thieves and the wolves and the lions who spilled it and all who opposed Christ himself in other ways too will be vanquished forever and righteousness alone will dwell in the new earth. He's a good king. He is the best of kings, and I urge you tonight to be sure that he is your king. And if he is, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold your king.